I find that Matthew proves himself to be quite an accomplished author and storyteller in the way that he structures his account of the life and ministry of Jesus. He'll sometimes be very comfortable to bring to you in his gospel various events from the life of Jesus that are not necessarily in the order in which they actually occurred, but they're constructed and presented to you so as to lead you and guide you along a particular train of thought in order to then confront you with various truths about the Lord Jesus. His, his grand aim is to cause you to see and recognise who Jesus really is. He's not being dishonest, he's not being manipulative, he just wishes to guide you in an orderly fashion through this truth so that you have your mind focused upon certain areas of truth at any given point in his gospel. So we have this uh, little section that we've just been considering with all of these different parables that Matthew collates for us as Jesus is teaching. You won't find that sequence of parables laid out like that in any of the other gospels. And all of them, of course, have as their theme the kingdom of God. The word kingdom appearing 12 times just in this one chapter. Because Matthew wants to impress upon us that they're not just stories. These stories, they're told by Jesus in order to explain spiritual realities and they demonstrate where and how you may know where you will spend eternity by making it abundantly clear which part of the parable is pointing the finger at you and saying, this is you. This is you in this parable. And it's clear and it's obvious. So as the parable of the sower unfolds and the explanation is given, you know in your own, in your own heart and soul which of these four soils depicts you. You know what it is you've heard. You also know whether or not you've really been listening. You know if you are of the wheat or of the tares. You know. You know if the kingdom of God is like a great treasure to you or not. You know whether or not you'd give up all that you have in order that you might have Jesus and all that he alone can give. You know. You know, as we were reminded, whether you're a good fish or a bad fish being brought out in the, in the dragnet. You know your destination when Christ returns at the end of this age. For each one of us, these verses in chapter 13 keep pointing the finger to us and this is you this is who you are this is where you are and this is where you're heading and Matthew pulls together these these parables of Jesus to confront us with all of these realities and then right at the end of the chapter Matthew slips in this little event that took place when Jesus returned to the people who knew him best or so you would think he returned certainly to the people who'd known him the longest. 
back to the region of Nazareth he goes. And what we witness here in many ways, it's, it's a living illustration of everything Jesus has just been teaching. There will be many who remain outside of God's kingdom despite the overwhelming evidence of God's goodness and grace and truth that they will witness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as Jesus returns to the region of Nazareth where he grew up, where he's known by so many, as is so clearly evident in, verse, in verses 55 and, and 56 there, the response of the people is largely like this. This Jesus, who does he think he is? So he's gone back to familiar surroundings, he's gone back to familiar faces, and he's followed his usual pattern of attending the local synagogue. Often we know that Jesus would have been given a portion of Scripture that he would read, and then he would preach to them. And he would preach like they'd never heard preaching before. And that was always the case when Jesus preached in the local synagogues explaining to them the Scriptures like they'd never had the Scriptures opened up and explained to them before. And I want you to notice a couple of really important things that are presented to us here. They were astonished. They were astonished. First, note this, they have no dispute with the things that Jesus said. Indeed, they seem to be mightily impressed. Because surely their question, where did this man get this wisdom? Surely this is a sign of being tremendously impressed by the things they've just heard coming from this man's mouth. It's not that they've dragged Jesus out of their meeting house like a mob baying for his blood because of the, the, the accusations of heresy and blasphemy. Not at all. Far from it. This wisdom coming from the lips of Jesus is undeniable. There's not one of them can actually find themselves to be in disagreement with it. The second thing we notice is that they have no suspicions about the validity of the miracles that Jesus has been performing. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? That these things actually are so is not the issue for them. If you've been following this series, you'll know that these two points are familiar ground for us now. But Matthew keeps re-emphasizing it and reinforcing it. The things that Jesus is teaching, people can see this is just amazingly good stuff. We've never heard the like before. And the miracles that he's performing, no one can dispute them. No one tries to. And yet these people in Nazareth, they're going to reject him. Now it's not because they've been receiving teaching that they can't understand. They've understood every single word. That's not the reason why they don't believe. They've been listening to the greatest teacher and evangelist this world has ever known. And still they won't believe. 
That's remarkable, isn't it? For those, for those of us who preach, on the one hand, it's something of an encouragement to know that they wouldn't even believe in Jesus. On the other hand, it kind of makes you think, well, if they couldn't even believe him, what chance do I stand? But we know that God works in different ways. You kind of know what I mean. But here are people, they've had evidence piled upon top of evidence for months on end. And still they won't believe. What we have shown to us in the Gospels is that sinful men and women will always find a reason not to believe. Sinful men and women will always give an excuse for their unbelief. Now there will be some who demand to see more. I haven't seen enough yet. Show me more. Maybe then I'll believe. They won't. If what they've already seen won't convince them, nothing will. For these people in Nazareth, they know what they've heard. They know what they've seen. They know these things ought to be making them pay attention to and take notice of what Jesus is saying. But their excuse is, well, this Jesus, he's just a man. He's one of us. Who does he think he is compared to us? And they're offended by Jesus. They're suspicious of him. Because we know where he started out from. How can these, how can these things be from a man like him? It's interesting for us to see the humanity of Christ in all of his early years was so very ordinary that those amongst whom he grew up, they'd only ever seen a man. He'd ever, they'd only ever seen one who they recognized as one of us. He's just one of us. They can name all the other boys born to Joseph and Mary after they became married. They can name all the other children, the, the sisters born to Mary and Joseph, who all still live locally. There's no sense amongst any of them that they'd expected to see Jesus involved in this kind of ministry one day. Oh, well, we all, we all knew where he was heading. No, there's none of that. But this shows us, the Bible requires us to put together certain things. It, re it requires us to put together the words being spoken and the deeds being done with the one who is doing all of these things. And the people of Nazareth, of, of course, they understand that's necessary. We're, yes, we're hearing the words and, and yes, we're seeing the things he's doing, but now we're looking at the man. And all of these things are absolutely wonderful, but we look at him, but we know this guy. He's just an ordinary guy. He's just one of us. They're not, they're not prepared to accept him. He's an offence to them that one of their own should now somehow be elevated to this position. The Bible requires us to, yes, to hear the words and, yes, to see the miracles but the Bible also requires us then to look at the man and accept and receive him. People in Nazareth can't do that. Have you? 
Will you? So the townsfolk in Nazareth, they brush aside Christ's ministry. They brush aside Christ's claims because they cannot reconcile how such things can be coming from the likes of him. What a great tragedy that is. Don't make their mistake. Beware this example that the people in Nazareth give you. There'll be some here this morning. <clears throat> you, you don't really have any issues with the things recorded about Jesus in the Bible. The things he did, the things he taught. They really, they really were quite remarkable, weren't they? They really are very compelling and you probably find yourself able to, to say, yeah, there, there really is none like this Jesus anywhere. But like the residents of Nazareth, you, you simply, you do not see as you must who Jesus is, despite all of that. When they looked at Jesus, they could not see beyond the son of the carpenter. And that was a great stumbling block to them. Here in Nazareth, and maybe in your own heart, no sooner have the seeds of truth been sown than the birds are picking them away. And a big part of the problem for you is that you simply will not, have not, cannot acknowledge Jesus for who he is. You cannot see that the hands of the sower are the hands that bear the scars of sacrifice. Because he is the eternal God made man in order that he may die for sinners. You've been told that. But you do not yet still see him as that for yourself. You still not do see Jesus as you need to see him. You cannot accept him or receive him as you need to receive him. You hear his words. You see the things he's done. But still, you hold him at arm's length. Do you remember the disciple Thomas after the resurrection? He'd been absent on the first occasion when Jesus had appeared amongst most of the disciples at one time. And he refused to believe. But then he saw. And then he understood and then he yielded himself to Christ. And then he made the declaration, you are my Lord and my God. And that's what's necessary. I've heard the stories of Jesus. I've heard the things that he's said. I've heard the gospel explained. But what you've not yet done is... is come in front of Christ and, and being confronted with Him. And what you've not yet done is have dealings with Him. That's what the people in Nazareth refused to do. We cannot find ourselves having, a, having dealings with this man. We refuse Him. We reject Him. You cannot afford to do that with Christ. But this is at the very heart of the Gospel. That you must have a dealing with Him. Be confronted with him. 
and, and bow before him and kneel before him and take him as your Lord and your Saviour. The people in Nazareth simply hold Jesus in contempt. They cannot see, they cannot understand what their response needs to be to this Jesus. They can't see that they need to be responding the way, the way one day Thomas would respond. For them to declare this Jesus as their Lord and their God, that would be laughable, that would be unthinkable. But actually that's where your problem lies this morning for some of you. Because you can't say that of Jesus either, yet. You refuse to. You still don't see him as you need to see him. My prayer for you this morning is that you would. That you would see him. The way you need to see him. That you would reach out to him. There are things in the gospel message which need to be understood. There are things in the gospel message in terms of truth which need to be understood and accepted and believed. But there's more to it than that. Because it's all about him. You need to see him. You need to hear his voice. You need to be convinced by him. You need to turn to him. And you need to trust in him. The people in Nazareth won't. The people in Nazareth can't. It will be to their eternal loss if they continue in that position. And the second issue, which is related to this one, which this passage also then throws up, is the problem of simply feeling that you're too familiar. Too familiar. And, and for you today, perhaps that familiarity comes out like this. But I've heard and done this so many times. I can imagine there being some people in Nazareth <clears throat> who, when first word of this exciting new young preacher and healer began to circulate, that they were filled with great anticipation but then they catch a glimpse of the preacher's face. Oh, it's Jesus. I've known him for years. What a letdown. What are people getting so excited over him for? And because of the sense of familiarity that they have with Jesus, they find that the whole thing just loses its impact. It's what Jesus says in verse 57, a prophet is not without honour except in his own country and in his own house. Maybe actually there's something in this with you as well. The problem for you is this, is this familiarity. Are you one of those who, like me, has no idea what it might be like to grow up in a family that has nothing to do with Christ or the gospel or the church. I have no idea what that could be like. You, you can't really begin to imagine, as I can't, 
what it would be like growing up in a non-Christian home, in an atheistic home, in a home where your parents are very much caught up in worldly desires and lusts and pursuits and pleasures. To have a dad who comes home from the pub very drunk and extremely unpredictable. I haven't a clue what that's like. To grow up in a home where Sunday is just like any other day of the week. To have a childhood in which the Bible is a complete unknown. Now, there are plenty of believers for whom that was their childhood. It wasn't mine. Maybe it's not yours. And it just feels so familiar to you after all these years. It's just not making any impression on you anymore. Sound familiar? What's the problem in Nazareth? Well, if you think back to some of the parables that Jesus has just told, the problem is in Nazareth is that they can't see the treasure. All they see is a very ordinary looking field. But they don't see the treasure. They long for that greatest of all pearls. Yet he's actually been amongst them the whole time. They've never seen him. And for some of you, this whole Christian environment in which you live and breathe, you've never known anything else. You can't imagine what it would be like being raised without them. But you say, it's all just too familiar. As you come to church one more Sunday morning, and all you can think of is that you've heard and done this so many times. Some of you parents were talking about your children. Will nothing ever get through to them, we wonder. Some of you are in a different place. Some of you have unconverted parents or siblings. Their issue is a bit different. You've explained the gospel to them. They've attended occasional services. They've attended evangelistic events. They've understood what's been said, but they haven't seen Jesus. They haven't heard his voice. They haven't been convinced by him. They haven't turned to him. They haven't trusted, to, trusted him. Whatever is the particular angle that you're coming from this morning, the basic problem is always the same. You've not been confronted by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he, he hasn't impacted your life. It's not the lack of having heard and known the truth. You've never heard Christ and you don't know him. How to resolve this dilemma, assuming you'd like to? Well, tell him honestly where you stand right now. Ask him to show you your need of him. Ask that you might hear his voice. Ask that you might meet with him and he with you. 
ask that he would reveal himself to you by his Spirit. You need Jesus Christ to be your personal, loving, redeeming Lord and Saviour. Seek him. Knock. Keep on knocking until God answers. Parents, pray this for your children. I know you do, but keep on praying. Don't give up. Plead God's mercy and grace for them. Pray that the Lord will give you full assurance that he's heard your prayers. And then thirdly, we're confronted in this little passage with the ruin of unbelief. The ruin of unbelief. In verse 58, Jesus teaches us this third thing. He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So this is the ruin of unbelief. And this shows us, in case we were ever in any doubt, that any of these great miracles that Jesus ever performs, it's always on account of the faith that people have. Now, there are those occasions when Jesus states it clearly, that it's because of this person's faith that they've received this blessing, this miracle, this healing, this cure, whatever it was. And here it's the opposite. Because there is no faith, there is no belief, there is no trust in Christ. And so there are no mighty miracles being done. Jesus is not just like some Father Christmas going around willy-nilly distributing gifts to everyone regardless of whatever it is. There's much more involved in that. There are issues of faith and trust in all where Jesus ministers. And some will refuse to believe in Christ, no matter how clear the teaching, no matter how clear the evidence. And here's the root problem, unbelieving hearts. An unbelieving heart. Hearts which, while they continue in unbelief, will only grow harder. Ultimately, the people of Nazareth were, were not doubting that Jesus could do miracles. They believed he could do miracles. They were doubting that he was the Messiah who they needed to put their trust in and their hope in. They were doubting that he was the promised one who they need to put their faith in. Faith and belief. It's not faith and belief that Jesus can do the supernatural. This faith and belief is that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God. That you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who came into this world to be the saviour of sinners. And this faith and belief is that you receive him and trust him and that you do, you do that for your salvation. And you do that as he is offered to you in the gospel in repentance of your sins. And that is the only faith and belief that counts. That you trust in him as your saviour and your Lord. That's the kind of faith and belief that's being spoken of here. And this is the kind of unbelief that is being spoken of here. That kind of lack of faith 
which means that Jesus is not performing any miracles in Nazareth today. People came to Christ all the time and they were trembling and wondering whether or not he could really do for them the amazing things that they needed for him to do. But the key was that they nevertheless still trusted him as Lord and they trusted him as Savior and great things were done. But they believed him and they trusted him. And their hope and their faith were in him. But in Nazareth, the hardness of their hearts is keeping these people from experiencing those blessings that Christ could bring. It's unbelief which prevents God's saving blessings coming down upon you. It's not that God's heart is not good. It's not that Jesus was having an off day in Nazareth. It's not that Jesus had something against them in Nazareth. It's not God who does not desire to see sinners converted. It's sinners who don't desire to be converted. Why is it that there are people who don't believe? It's because of the hardness of their heart. John Calvin said this, our own unbelief is the only impediment which prevents God from satisfying us largely and bountifully with all good things. Your unbelief is what keeps you from enjoying that which God has for you, that he would long for you to know, that he would long for you to experience. And it's your unbelief that keeps you from enjoying it. And of course, what Calvin means by that is that not that God's purposes are being thwarted, not that his power is being thwarted. What he simply means is that faith is always the instrument of our receiving the grace of the gospel. Faith is always that means which God uses in order that we might lay hold of these things which God has for us in Christ. Without faith, you'll always remain outside of God's grace. Now, of course, Calvin also understood that it's by an act of God's grace that the believing heart is, a, is converted in order that it might believe. Calvin understands it's an act of God's grace that the unbelieving sinner is given the gift of faith. Of course, he understood that. Where there is no faith, well, that's a sure sign that there is no work of, of God's grace at work in that heart. All those who do exercise faith, well, they don't do that because somehow they're better than other people. It's because God in his goodness has drawn them to himself. But unbelief is a great ruin. J.C. Ryle says this, Behold in this single word the secret of the everlasting ruin, everlasting ruin of multitudes of souls. They perish forever because they will not believe. There is nothing beside in earth or heaven that prevents their salvation. Their sins, however many, might all be forgiven. The Father's love is ready to receive them. The blood of Christ is ready to cleanse them. 
The power of the Spirit is ready to renew them. But a great barrier exists. They will not believe. John chapter 5 and verse 40, Jesus said, You will not come unto me that you might have life. You will not come that you might have life. Christian friends, today you need to realize, you need to remember again, that if you have trusted on the Lord Jesus Christ, it's only because God has opened your eyes and imparted to you faith and drawn you to himself. He's shown you the beauty of the Savior. And as uh, one of the Puritan writers, Richard Sibb, said, your heart has been wed to the Savior. Richard Sibb said, faith is marriage of the soul to Christ. It's quite a helpful phrase. In other words, just like a, a woman finds a good man who she knows she can trust and commits her life to him, so in faith our souls become wed to Christ. We see that we can trust him. And so we give ourselves and commit ourselves to him. Faith is the marriage of the soul to Christ. No Christian was ever able to make that step of trust and commitment had not the grace of God been at work in their heart. All of our hearts have been dead in sin. But for those this morning who remain in unbelief, it's not something intellectual that keeps you from Christ. It's something moral and spiritual. And that means that the only place where you can go when you are struggling for belief in Christ is to go to your knees in prayer. To seek that God would open your eyes that you may be embraced by the love of God in Christ Jesus. That the Lord himself would lead you to the foot of the cross and that you would meet Jesus there and that you would have dealings with him and that in his wonderful grace he would have dealings with you.